Hey, Carl Franklin here. If you're going to be around Oslo, Norway, the 17th through the 21st of June, why don't you come stop in and see us at NDC? Richard and I will be there recording podcasts, so stop in and say hi, but come for the speakers. Brock Allen, Donovan Brown, Joe Albahari, Julie Lerman, Steve Sanderson, Jen Stirrup, Troy Hunt. Obviously, there's a whole lot more. This is one of our favorite conferences in Europe. Come check us out. Go to ndcoslo.com. Oh, and I also got to mention Dev Intersection that we're going to be at in Orlando, June 11th through 13th, the week before NDC. Go to devintersection.com to register now and tell them you heard about us on .NET Rocks. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Coming from our respective studios. Here in our respective corners. Mine at my house, yours at your house. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sort of post-build and you're post-NDC Minnesota, right? Right. And we haven't even talked to each other since then, so. No, pretty much. Just been busy, busy. How busy, was busy. NDC Minnesota? It was great. I mean, I had a good time. I, I learned a few things and I did my poly talk and got to hang out with people that I don't usually see. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's, it's unfortunate to have it during build, for better or worse. Of course, I was doing the podcasting space thing. So, I was just running around managing podcasters as I am wont to do. But right. we had a good time doing that. Yeah. And uh, Scott Hunter's show was wildly downloaded. Yes, very popular. Very timely. Yeah, yeah. And I almost think we'd recorded it ahead of build, knowing what was coming to build. <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that. How would that ever happen? How I don't we, understand. That's not even possible. That's the strangest thing. All right. Well, I got some fun for uh, Better Know Framework today. So roll the crazy music. All right, dude, what do you got? So this is a website uh, brought to you by Burke Holland and Sarah Drasner. Oh. And it's... They made a point of saying it's hosted on Azure App Service. Of course. It's called VS Code Can Do That <laughs> dot com. That's a, that's a good one. Isn't that great? Yeah. So just uh, going through some of these here, things that you probably didn't know VS Code could do. Maybe you do. I don't know. Force collapsible regions. Hmm. Refactor promises to async await. How cool is that? Wow. Okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. A balance inward, outward, uh, pull requests, toggle sidebar focus, breadcrumbs, Slack chat, write in Visual Studio Code, soft undo, share your local host, and the list goes on and on and on. Wow. And on. And VS Code is- What a good idea. Yeah. VS Code kind of, you know, because when we heard about it, it was brand new and- Sure. Well, it was an editor, right? Yeah, and it's just grown and grown and grown. It's got debugging tools and yep. all sorts of things now. It's, it's amazing. So they're up to 35 stupid VS Code tricks. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> check it out. It's, it's vscodecandothat.com. Love it. That's yeah. a great one, dude. Nice find. Thanks. Who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1614, which you did in January this year, 2019, with Vishwas Lele talking about becoming a cloud native, because mm -hmm. I know we're going to talk a little more cloudy related stuff today. Right. And this particular comment, very brief, comes from Justin Kaffenberger. He says, the problem with going straight to serverless, so we were talking about serverless, is you become tightly coupled with a serverless provider, right. whether that's Azure Functions or AWS Lambda or anything else. If you have to install software on-premises, that story becomes a lot more complicated. Yeah, a lot more complicated as in, well, that's not going to work. Hmm. You're going to have to build your code differently. That is the weakness of serverless is it is still proprietary to the stacks. It's one of the th reasons we've been talking so much about containers, especially Docker with Kubernetes, is that it runs on all the stacks. Yeah. Although not quite as seamless as you'd hope, but at least better than dealing with the challenges of switching between serverless implementations. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. all I got to say about that. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. You're, Justin's not wrong. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if we actually come to some kind of serverless standard. It, you know, I don't, I don't know that the individual cloud providers are keen to do that because it's what makes their platforms unique. Right. 
On the other hand, they wanted that for orchestration too, and then we got landed with with Kubernetes, and everybody's got it because it's open source. Yeah, maybe we'll see what Rob thinks about that when we bring him on in a minute. For sure. So, yeah. Justin, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you, and if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or via any of our social media. We publish every show to Facebook, and if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. Oh, yeah, don't you know. <laughs> little time in Minnesota and it just catches to you. Oh, it? yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that happens. Can't stop talking like that. Then, no, hey. Then, went then there, hey. All right, well, let's bring on Rob officially. Here's his bio written by him. I cannot take credit for it. Rob Richardson is a Microsoft MVP, a friend of Redgate, a high-quality software developer and international conference speaker. Rob is the owner and principal developer at Richardson & Sons, LLC, a boutique software development firm offering Docker, Kubernetes, ASP.NET, Node, and Git consulting and training. He leads the Southeast Valley.net user group in Chandler, Arizona, and is a core organizer of AZ Give Camp, As Give Camp. As Give Camp? As Give Camp. As Give Camp. One of his biggest accomplishments is he received a coveted .NET Rocks mug for his comment on show 960. <laughs> and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there, and if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Code by. And definitely follow Rob on Twitter. He's at Rob underscore Rich, or look at his content online at robrich.org. <laughs> All right, that's a little twisted. <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> we're not giving out dotnet rocks bugs anymore is it fair to parody the site that i'm on while on that yeah, site while on it yeah i think it's uh it's very recursive department of recursion department nice yeah definitely i also really love that the covenant to dotnet rocks mugs are um no longer a thing now you get a music to code by so if That's you want right. a dotnet rocks yes. mug then um you get a music to code by well you can always buy one <laughs> we still have our stupid gear store oh sweet yeah. I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah, there's a link on the website. It's Cafe Press. Well, anyway, I hope you're getting a lot of good use out of that coveted .NET Rocks mug, Rob. Oh, yeah. As you write code and try to change the world. Yeah, definitely. What does changing the world look like to you today? I'm doing a lot with uh, Docker and Kubernetes, taking people's content out of VMs and putting it inside of containers and ultimately reducing their dependence on physical hardware and ultimately reducing their costs as well. Mm. That's been a lot of fun. Nice. You know, the Docker file format isn't that difficult. It seems a little daunting at first, but you know, you roll up your sleeves and get in there and it's pretty easy to understand, I think. Yeah, definitely. There's really only four verbs that you need mm. and each one just starts off that line and then the rest of it is whatever else you need. Right. So you grab those four verbs um, from copy, run, and CMD. And you're good to go. There's a fifth one, right? Explode? Isn't that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nuke? But this is just configuration as code. It's just it's keeping things simple, right? And reproducible. Yeah, definitely. I love to take build files and move them into Docker files. And then my build script is um, Docker build. <laughs> right. And that becomes really elegant. Yeah. Nice. So are you rehabilitating existing software? This is all brownfield, how do I make this living containers kind of sort, kind of work? Yeah, definitely. Um, we'll do some greenfield work when the time comes, but a lot of brownfield work where they're just trying to get off Windows Server 2016, uh, 2013, no, Windows Server 2003 mm -hmm. or 2008, trying to get on to Windows Server 2016 or 2019. Holy man. And they're looking at VMs and they're like, well, yeah, I moved to a VM. But then what? Do I move some more <laughs> next year or next decade? Um, and containers become a much more durable place to move to. And I'm hoping you're meaning 2003 R2. Or, you know, Windows 95 or... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I have a soft spot for 2003 R2 because I still think it was the fastest network stack that Microsoft ever made. The, the mm. problem is it's, it's 15 years old. Like, it needs to be replaced. Yeah, wonderfully, but sadly, Windows 95 still works as well as it did in 1995 on my 5 megahertz machine. Arguably better because the hardware is faster. Yeah, and I can virtualize it and run it in a browser and all those things. The downside is that 
on Windows 95, I go to boot up Internet Explorer, oh, I don't know, 0. 0.1, and the web doesn't work that way anymore. No, it doesn't. Right. Yeah. I remember a time when that was the only way you could get on the internet was through their <laughs> browser on in Windows. That was it. Yeah. Man. So I, I love this idea of rehabilitating old apps is, yeah, they flip them into VMs. So now the VMs live forever. You know, it used to be our mm -hmm. time limit was when hardware died. And now that hardware never dies effectively, you just, mm. you just keep on moving your virtualized instances. We have these ultra ancient implementations. And just because they run, you keep running them. Yeah. Why should I shut that down? I just go in and patch the VM every so often and it keeps running forever. Yeah, as long as it keeps getting patches and, you know, 2003 R2 isn't getting any patches anymore. <laughs> yes. So what does it take to then go from a VM into a set of containers? Because I suspect that's not, you know, a P to V switch. It is and it isn't. There's a process of getting to a place where you can scale. And so you'll hit the same type of problems when you go to a server farm. Because now mm -hmm. I have two instances of my app, and the two instances may or may not work well together. Right. If I'm using session state, if I'm using um, in-memory caching, then those types of things fall down when I get to two machines. Right. And so similarly, if I'm going to move to containers, because well, you know, now I have a slider that can go from one to two to ten to two hundred, then I need to battle those types of things either move session state in out of process, um, move caching out of process into something like Azure Cache or Azure Redis Cache. Mm -hmm. And then once I've gotten to that point where I can scale beyond that one magic server, then the process of moving into containers usually isn't too bad. It's just a matter of uh, setting the content into place and running. Yeah, I, I used to do a talk ages ago called From One Server to Two that just went through all the stuff you need to haul out to actually have multiple web servers. Yeah. And so there's times when it's like, well, can you just get it onto a Docker? And I'm like, yeah. So we get it into Docker, they start kicking it around, and then they bump into all that stuff that they should have gotten out when they went from one server to two. And they're like, well, uh, can we just go back to VM? <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, I guess containers really resist storing local state, don't they? Not so much that they resist it. You know, you have a fake machine that you can write to. The downside right. is next request, you may not come back to that same machine. That may have been the time when uh, the platform recycled your container. Or right. that may have been the time when your container crashed in an interesting way. Or mm. the load balancer sent you to a different one. Mm. And sticky sessions can overcome that a little bit. But still, the presumption is short-lived hardware that we can replace really easily. Right. So if you're making assumptions about your hardware, then you're not being very durable with your platform. Yeah, best thing, move it out of process completely. Yeah. So what is Istio and, and where does it fit into this uh, uh, equation? Istio is really cool. Istio is a service mesh, and I really hate that term. Mm. <laughs> I'm gonna say a service mesh management tool. You know, I have a mesh of microservices, what is a service mesh? Well, a service mesh gives us this traffic direction, mutual TLS, and monitoring over the top of our suite of microservices. So Istio kind of stands between each of our services and makes sure that that communication is what we expect. So it's all about communication, not necessarily about orchestration. Right. We can misuse that or you know set on top of that to do orchestration where where we can do things like ab testing or canary releases okay. and it works perfectly for that it's about communicating from the outside world to each container and then communicating between that container and the other containers and it does managed often authorization authentication encryption and all that just out of the box it can probably that's not where you want to do your user authentication but it does do mutual TLS and uh, policies between the containers. What's really cool, the way it works, is I have this container, and this container sits inside of a pod. A pod is that unit of scale for Kubernetes' mm -hmm. sake. And so inside that pod, I typically only have my one container. What Istio is going to do is it's going to add a second container, an Envoy proxy. 
And so all of the traffic that would come into my container that comes into my pod instead goes from my pod into that Envoy proxy. And that Envoy proxy will then send it into my container. So the Envoy proxy can do things like validate that service is allowed to talk to me right. or validate that uh, that communication was secure. On the way out, it does exactly that as well. So if I'm going to reach out into another microservice in my cluster, then instead of reaching directly to that service, uh, my container will reach through that Envoy proxy. IP tables does some magic here. And that Envoy proxy will then reach out to the other Envoy proxy in the other container's pod. Yep. And it will route then from this Envoy proxy to that Envoy proxy. Because now I'm routing between proxies, I can do mutual TLS. I can have that communication right. be secure between my containers. Right. So my container reaches to my Envoy proxy, reaches out to their Envoy proxy, reaches to their container. The communication between the Envoy proxies now is mutual TLS. I have security between them straight away. Mm. And now all of the communication between our two uh, containers is secure. So the, this is starting to feel like we're back to the tribes of JavaScript libraries. So I'm running Kubernetes with Istio and Envoy proxy together to get all those capabilities. Right. As I install Istio, Istio will replace slash augment a lot of the built-in Kubernetes things. In particular, hmm. I'll use Istio services instead of Kubernetes services. And I'll use Istio gateways instead of Kubernetes ingress controllers. Okay. And because I'm using an Istio virtual service, then Envoy just comes along for the ride. That's Istio's implementation of that proxying mechanism. Oh, so I don't actually have to separately go and get Envoy proxy. Istio is going to grab it for me. Exactly. As I install okay. Istio, I get Envoy, I get Istio's control plane, I get all of the dashboards, which includes a Grafana dashboard. All of that just comes out of the box. Istio itself is free and open source, so mm -hmm. there's no cost for me installing it at all. Yeah. Well, that was true of Kubernetes as well. Yes. And so do you see these things becoming more overlapped, Istio and Kubernetes, or do you think that... Um you know, Google's kind of like a best of breed company. You know, if they think that there's something else that's out there that does a better job at something than their tools, they may actually embrace it. Yeah. In the same way that I can check on the box as I set up an Azure Kubernetes service and start to use virtual kubelet, as I set up a Google Kubernetes engine, a GKE engine, I have a checkbox to enable Istio. So, yeah. Oh, great. In the box, <laughs> it's built in. Docker actually said at DockerCon that they're going to start shipping Istio in the box as well. See, this is just awesome. I mean, how yeah. how long ago was it where this would be unheard of? Well, yeah, oh, you, yeah. part of me, so I'm immediately thinking, well, Istio should just make their own orchestrator. Like, they're clearly replacing a lot of the top layer here, but then why? What's why? wrong with Kubernetes as the orchestrator? Right. Yeah, exactly. And everybody's using it already. It looks like they recommend Helm is in the equation too. Yeah, Helm is a deployment tool, a package manager. We can kind of think right. of it like NuGet or NPM, but for Docker yeah. containers. Helm is that where that thing where I can say, hey, can you install this, all of the containers and all of the things? But by the way, let me override these things. So as I'm installing Istio, I'll likely use Helm to install Istio as a package. I can just go download the thing and start uh, jamming Kubernetes YAML files into place as well. But Helm mm -hmm. just makes it that much easier. Just a bit more organized, it seems. Yeah. So monitoring, tracing, logging is there too. And it seems like everybody's got, you know, many of our sponsors, that's what they do. And uh, it seems like everybody's got one of those. So, I mean, yeah. how, is, how is Istio's version of that? Well, it gives you those three things. It gives you that security, the mutual TLS between containers. It gives you the monitoring since it's routing all the traffic. Oh, by the way, let's just keep track of it. And then it gives you that traffic direction, shaping and validating and things. So those are kind of the three things. Towards monitoring, yeah, by the way, since the traffic is flowing through the, the Envoy proxies, let's just log that. Right. What's really cool then is I can go highlight, uh, they have a Grafana dashboard that gives me metrics of kind of aggregated metrics of how everything works. And then they also have a Jaeger. I've never said that out loud, so I hope I did justice there. They have a Jaeger dashboard that allows me to dig into each request. And then they have a service graph dashboard that just shows 
a network of all of my microservices. And the cool thing is, as I'm kind of routing these things together, as I'm designing them, I may think that I've connected this to that and this to that. But if I've got somebody watching the actual traffic, then it can tell me exactly who's calling what. And that's really elegant. Yeah, right. And it seems like that's the perfect place to do it because they're they're the ones controlling the traffic. Yeah, definitely. And so it kind of takes that concern out of my code and my code just says, hey, I'm calling over there. This monitoring and logging and shaping thing just happens over there. It becomes almost an implementation detail. Yeah, the challenge then is this this product needs to be good at two things. I mean, it needs to be good at that the, the connecting of the different services together in the security model and so forth, and then also be good at monitoring. Right. So I, I'm just wondering which piece is it better at? I'm being cynical. It's probably better at the former. It's probably better at traffic shaping. Right. But the logging is just kind of there. And yeah. so I love that they're leaning on these open source tools to do that. You know, if I'm building out my .NET service, I may choose to log to Grafana in the process of doing all the things. Now I'm just happening to get my infrastructure to log to Grafana, and I don't need to do it by hand anymore. Yeah, and again, we've got this this tribe emerging of our orchestration solution that is all these different sort of best tools. Yeah. So Grafana as the as the reporting side, the, mon- the analytics and monitoring. Right. And the tribes are kind of interesting. Um, React kind of did a similar thing. I have Re- React. Okay, so now what's my state store? Do I use Redux or do I use Flex or do I use all of these? Th- and so each piece of the React story, I have to go pick the open source piece that I want to add to it. What I kind right. of like about the Kubernetes story is that Kubernetes from the outset is built with these replaceable pieces. So each mm-hmm. Kubernetes YAML file has an API version and kind at the top of that definition. Mm-hmm. And so I can have custom resource definitions that say, here's a new type of thing that I want to build. And so inside the Kubernetes ecosystem, I can go pull anything that I want. I can go pull Istio or I can go pull other things that augment Kubernetes in interesting ways. Because Kubernetes itself is open source, we've kind of established that as a great baseline, dare I say, operating system. (laughs) And then we build on top of it Mm. with the interesting tribes that we want to collect. But Kubernetes isn't really barring us or pointing us at any particular technology, letting instead the um, open source community pick the tools that will rise to the top. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, the alternative is that they that each of these tool builders is finding their own unique way to insert themselves into Kubernetes, which means anytime Kubernetes makes an update, stuff breaks. <laughs> yeah. The fact that there's an intentional place for all of that means that there's a right way to make those extensions and you don't have to worry about them being fragile. Right. Is the uh, architecture of Istio easy to follow and understand if you're used to doing proxies and other things? Eh. Yes and no. Um, They always start with this one graph where I have my two pods and I watch my container's traffic go from my container to the Envoy proxy within my pod, Mm. going out to uh, pilot and coming back, then routing to the other Envoy. And that graphic is always decently confusing if you're not kind of familiar with all the pieces. Mm. Once you've kind of got that, that all the inbound and outbound traffic to my container goes through this proxy. And because this proxy is there, now I can do interesting things like policy validation or A-B testing Mm -hmm. or routing a percentage of the traffic to this uh, pod and a percentage to that pod. You know, those things just start to come to life. I don't know a better way to explain that graphic, but that graphic is so prolific and it's not always the easiest to approach straight away, especially because the arrows kind of go everywhere in both directions yeah yeah it it does feel like there's a bunch of different things you need to learn like this it's not it's not a trivial just turn it on and it works there is some stuff you need to know and you need to take take care of right and while we here while we're here a good question might be to back up and say well do i need a service mesh do i need something like istio yeah right fair question Same thing when I start to look at Redux or Vuex, you know, those kind of, one could argue MVC as well, MVVM. Mm -hmm. 
Do I need this level of complexity in my code? Well, it depends. If I have one of those problems, do I need help routing traffic? Do I need uh, secure communication between my containers? Do I need this monitoring? If I don't, uh, maybe you don't need Istio. There is a decent amount of overhead by running twice the containers (laughs) in my cluster. Who wouldn't want those things, though? I mean, security between, um, you know, between microservices? Yeah, I want that. You know? Well, I want it, but do I need it? If I own the entire cluster and I know that all of the workloads running in that cluster are secure, valid containers, uh, I don't necessarily need TLS between each of my microservices. I just need communication. If I'm in a multi-tenant environment and I don't trust all the workloads running mm-hmm. in my um, in my cluster, yeah, I definitely do want mutual TLS between the containers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But is it worth the overhead of running twice the number of containers, you know, my workload and the Envoy proxy right. and the Istio control plane together with the Kubernetes control plane? Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, you know, I think just we can always paint a perfect scenario where everything is in the same styles of containers, all living in the same place. Nothing needs to move around. And so none of this is necessary. But the real world's always dirtier than that. Yeah. That, no, no, we need this particular service and it's not in the cloud provider of our choice. It's somewhere else. Or, we, you know, pieces of this app are still running in a VM and have to be communicated with a different way. Like that yeah. real software is not tidy. Or I'm trying to span across clouds because I want to do a really expensive durability solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have, yeah, because the boss has insisted that we're not dependent on any one cloud because clouds aren't reliable. Yeah, well. yeah. You know, I think the stronger hybrid argument is the uh, a portion of this is still running on premises. Yeah, and I'm not ready to move it for whatever reason. And and you have that option that you could be running a set of containers on an on premises system that is interacting with a set of cloud containers as well. Yeah, and so at that sense, then I do need mutual TLS between my containers. Yeah, and 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 should I I, I think Carl's hit it. Like, why wouldn't you always want? authentication and encryption between the containers. It just seems like a really good idea. Well, it might be setting you up for future architectures if you need to, you know, move your thing to other clouds or be be a, suddenly in a multi-tenant situation. But one thing that we talk about on the shows all the time is tr- don't try to predict the future, right? But how difficult would it be to add Istio after the fact, after you've already got, uh, you know, an isolated cluster running and now you need to explode it across clouds say yeah exactly and to that end that's probably the right time to start considering istios Mm. after i've got the solution after i've got some revenue coming in Mm. it's paying off the budget of the cluster that i put together now i need to talk about upgrading it Mm -hmm. it's really easy when we're gathering requirements to just grab all the check boxes yes i want 100 percent code coverage and i want mutual tls between my containers and all of these are non-negotiable and it's like yeah that's that's nice and all what's your budget yeah 100 percent uptime you know i like the the sort of the continuation of the naval theme you know the sailboat and then they have words like pilot and citadel and galley (laughs) 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 what does it mean what does it mean yeah All right, guys, we got to take a break for this very important message. This episode of .NET Rocks is sponsored by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed request traces from your cloud containers and orchestration software. Track the health and performance of your dynamic containers, apps, and services with rich visualizations and machine learning-driven alerts. To start monitoring your container clusters, sign up for a free trial today and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell and Carl Franklin. We're on .NET Rocks. We're talking to our friend Rob Richardson, talking about Istio and this sort of mature model of containers, orchestration, dealing with multi-clusters, and the endless naval terms they use throughout. (laughs) It's been so long. I haven't seen you since an entire commercial ago. How have you been? (laughs) It's been seconds, Rob. What have you been doing with yourself? (laughs) Yeah, we've been shipping things all over the place. Uh, Yeah, you could ship quite a lot in 30 seconds. (laughs) Nice. There you go. 
I love how Kubernetes has all of these naval themes and like all of the things building on top of it have now introduced those as well. Istio pulling in all of these things. We're going to run out of words. We're going to have to start using like naval ranks and all sorts of <laughs> there you go. obscure naval words that sailors don't usually say in mixed company, you know? Yes. <laughs> Naming things is hard. It is hard. Yes. And renaming things is harder because it's like, okay, do I take the overhead of renaming all of them or do I just rename the ones that I bumped into today? Mm. What happens about those ones that I didn't bump into? Do I rename those eventually? Do I not? Yeah. No, you can. You definitely can get down the rabbit hole with the names and yeah. you only have to go so far. I don't know what the heck an Istio is, but it doesn't matter. I can see, I think I can remember this. Yeah. So yeah. close enough for the name. Should we explore? I, I, actually, I want to stay on the Brownfield story. So we've got a customer, they're running in a VM. You're starting to peel stuff out in containers. Do you wait until you've emptied the VM before you light this up? Or can you do in sort of interim phase with a few things running in containers and everything else still in the VM? What's cool about Istio, and I've never uh, practiced it in this way, is that Istio in theory is this mechanism of communicating between things. And it's not necessarily tied to Kubernetes. In fact, they very specifically have an implementation tier to get their um, traffic shaping methodology into Kubernetes. Right. So in theory, you could point it at some virtual machine services and point it at some container services. And that sounds interesting. Um, ideally, I kind of want to wrap all the things in this security blanket. And if it's running in a VM, uh, can I ensure that all the traffic coming out of the VM goes through my proxy? Eh, I don't know. It, hmm. it feels like an interesting exploration. Right. And they're, I mean, and they're offering support for different containers services uh, as part of the traffic management, but that's not the real issue, right? The real issue is getting to stuff that isn't in containers at all. Right. But, I mean, in the end, it's all TLS HTTP. So you yeah. should be able to get to it. In the end, yeah. it's, just data. <laughs> yeah, just more data. And I love that in the end, it's just data, but it's probably running over HTTP nowadays. So in the yes. end, it's just a web connection. HTTP I love that that's kind of like our baseline assembly today. Yeah. You don't, and you don't really need to go further than that. Should we dive into right. some of these details about what these... Entities are within Istio, like and we know what envoys are, but mixers and pilots and citadels and galleys. Should we go down that rabbit hole? Yeah, definitely we can. Uh, those start to get kind of weird as we dig out the pieces. Um, another way to go is we can look at, so now that I have this proxy mechanism between my services, what abstractions can I build on top of that? Hmm. And so either path could be really entertaining to dig through. Well, you're the expert, so you decide. Um, when I have this mechanism where I've got this uh, control plane, this pilot that drives traffic between containers, well, now, what if I drive some of my traffic to this other container and most of my traffic to the regular one? And so we can do this really cool thing with A-B testing where um, maybe I'll take 10% of the traffic and send it to the new version or I'll send traffic based on a particular header. Maybe I'm matching a cookie or a query string and send it to this new container. And so I can validate that the new system works correctly hmm. with these canary releases. And then slowly I can move traffic to the new content straight away. This I is see. a feature that Kubernetes doesn't have built in, oh. but that Istio kind of gives us because we're proxying traffic between containers in interesting ways. Well, I like that. I mean, what do you do? It by percentage or timing, or how how do you say how much you want to go to container Y versus X? Um, percentages is the easiest one, and I can say you know ten percent, ninety percent. If I want to get more granular than that, then I can dig into the request and say, requests that contain this can move over. So I may mm. have like beta customers that I want to push to the new service. Right. I like that. Yeah. So let me turn on the new service and make sure it works. But, you know, don't degrade the service for everybody if it doesn't. Right. And then 
I'll turn it up to 20% and I'll turn it up to 50%. Mm. And so the old cluster is still, the old mesh of services is still doing just fine. And then once I've gotten to 100%, now I go kill off the old one. Alternatively, without something like this traffic shaping, I would flip everything to the new service and I would go, does it work? No? Okay, quickly flip back. Right. You know, this kind of gradual turn on is really elegant. And you only get, you know, 100 calls versus 100,000, right? Right. (laughs) So I've got this um, A-B testing thing that I can do. I can also... Watch and, and wait. Hang on a second, because you were not you were describing more of the canary model, right? Where I'm just going to try the new version first, mm. right? Right. Where A, A B is, I've got two versions of the same feature, and I want to see which one is better liked or which one is faster. Like, mm-hmm. I presume mm-hmm. I could do that. Well, it's a little more complicated. It's like eighty percent of my traffic still running on the old version. Two new versions. I'm going to put ten on one and ten on the other, and let's sort of look at the numbers. Exactly. Mm. And the cool part is that's just a methodology difference when I approach the same technology. Under the hood, I'm still looking at I'm sending 80% of the traffic here, 10% of the traffic there, and 10% of the traffic over there. Whether I'm doing that as a canary release or as an A-B test, then it's what do I need to learn there? It's really cool. Yeah. No, and, and I love the idea of we get to a place from an infrastructure perspective, me putting my IT hat on, where developers stop spending time arguing over the best version of a feature. It's like, guys, just build them both. Right. And we'll try them in the field. Like, And make your hypothesis. Why is yours going to be better? Mm-hmm. How are we going to measure it to see if it actually you know, comes down that way? Right. Yeah, definitely. Let the weird users decide for you. Yeah. Well, more relevantly, like code's not the hard part here, actually. If it takes you six months to build each one, then let's not build them both. But if it yeah. takes you a couple of days to build each one, yeah, let's definitely build both. We'll spend longer in meetings fighting about it than just building <laughs> them both and trying them. Exactly. Totally. We could write them yeah. in the meetings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Not that that ever happens. No. But yeah, and, it, and, it, and if it takes you six months to write it, like, what are you building, dude? That's a lot of stuff, right? We were just experimenting with <laughs> yeah. a feature. And speaking of the brownfield moving to Docker is kind of like that. They're like, well, so should I wait until I peel off all the microservices before I yank it out of the VM? Or can I put a monolith in a container? Hmm. Um, those are fun conversations as well. Yeah, Equally, right. where I'm like, well, I'm just going to code through this meeting and you wake me up when there's something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, it's running right now in the container. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how you know people who aren't familiar with this stuff really don't understand how fast... And easy it is to do this stuff, you know. Oh yeah. Now the Im- the implicit statement there is move the monolith of the container, right? Is that do you agree, Rob? Is that what you would do? I would give it a try. Um, right. That was actually my talk at DockerCon. The videos have actually been posted by now, which is really cool. We can put a link in the show notes if you'd like. Mm-hmm. That uh, video was exactly that. I took a brownfield application, you know, quote unquote brownfield. I just said file new project and built a .NET Framework app and a uh, .NET Framework Windows service. And then I put both of those in containers. I carefully crafted the Docker file for the um, Windows service and also flipped that service into a console app so that Docker could monitor that process. Copied that Docker file into the website and um, validated that it worked correctly. Um, and then I had a website and a Windows service running a container straight away. And then I kind right. of flipped over to a Greenfield site and said, okay, let's do file new project inside Visual Studio 2019. And let's pick a .NET Core app. And then let's click the um, add Docker support checkbox, <laughs> which is so beautiful. It creates a Docker file that is a little swirly, but then I've got the Docker content just straight away ready to go. Mm-hmm. The finale of that was then debugging that um, container mesh, the suite of services from inside Visual Studio, where Visual Studio attach- actually attaches to a VS debug instance running inside the container so that I get that same step over, step into experience inside Visual Studio, but the content is actually running in the container. Right. And so it's like, hey, you know, whether you're, monolith or your microservice is running in a container, it's just a matter of how much RAM your container has. This is definitely possible to get your apps into containers. And this still sounds like an hour or two's worth of work at this point. It's an hour or two to experiment. You know, at that point, then you'll identify, 
what did I miss when I moved from one server to two? Right. Am I saving content to app data? <laughs> Am I trying to store session state? Uh, and those types of discoveries may take you longer to get rid of. Well, to actually fix them, but this has got nothing to do with containers. This is the same scaling problems we've been dealing with since the 90s. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. As soon as you go to multiple instances, you figure out what your machine dependencies actually are. Yeah. And so the beautiful methodology of containers is that I don't assume that my hardware is special. Yeah. I don't even assume it's durable. I just assume it's present. Yeah. No, it's very fair. And 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 that is sort of the reality for all of these things, right? What I what I appreciate about the container approach is that they're as small as possible. They can be created and destroyed as quickly as possible. Like it's a, it's now this entire strategy of how you roll new software out. No more in-place updates. Just make more instances and roll your work over to them. Yeah, exactly. Patch Tuesday is no longer about <laughs> logging into each machine and doing the thing. Patch Tuesday is about kicking off the CI build and having it use the newer base image with those updates already applied. Right. And then roll across to it. It should be called Replace Tuesday. Absolutely. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I'm actually a big proponent that we should empower our ops team to start kicking off our build servers as well. So every Patch Tuesday, the ops team goes and pushes build on each of the things that generates new containers that auto-deploy into dev and test and kicks off the automated tests. Once the automated tests go green, the build then notices that everything's fine and pushes that into production. If ops can deploy new versions of my app, then dev can focus on delivering value and not patching things and not keeping up with anything. Ops then just deploys every few days or every week, even brand new built versions. Um, That assumes that I have enough uh, testing to validate that my system won't break in those conditions. But let ops build your software and deploy it to production. Yeah, that's what I'm enjoying about this is just you when you strip away the complexities of getting things deployed and making big deployments, then you can push out more code faster and do more experiments and you know just build software a very different way. Yeah. Uh, and, you get, and you can be more experimental because the consequences of being wrong are so much lower. Oh, yeah. And everyone's like, well, what happens if I push out a bad build? Well, then you fix it and push out a good build in two minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep moving. Quickly. Yeah. And if I'm doing these kind of um, canary releases where I just route a portion of the traffic to it, then I can discover that pretty quickly and dial it back down and then go. Uh, I haven't impacted very many customers as I flipped over to it. Rob, I was poking around a little in the Istio documentation, and I see here uh, capabilities in traffic management for injecting faults and and the different failure handling rules. So can you actually use this as a part of your testing strategies? You can. Um, and in dev and test, that can be perfect, where I can inject faults. But more so in production, I can recover from faults in interesting ways. I can create a circuit breaker or a bulkhead that will block traffic to a service when it is unhealthy. And simultaneously, on the other side, I can create a rule that will retry traffic in interesting ways. So uh, when I go to create a connection to the other service, if the other service is offline, wait a second and try again. And that can be really interesting in in starting to recover gracefully in these service failures. Now, does that use poly or does it have its own sort of stuff? This is baked into the proxying. But what's really interesting about poly is that I have that kind of similar rule. Poly will retry automatically from inside by .NET code. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that will then reach out into the Envoy proxy and the Envoy proxy then will retry as well. And so it's like, well, if they're both retrying, who wins? Said differently, if my uh, if my Istio timeout is at eight seconds and my Poly timeout is at four seconds, then am I really buying anything with the Istio retries? Yeah, I guess the question is, Are you are, have you already committed to a retry mechanism? This is a way to insert one. Mm. I, I think I would I would defer to the coded one in Poly more than I would right. use the one in Istio. But if I don't have one like Poly, at least Istio gives me an option. But they tell you different things, don't they? They do. And what's really interesting in Poly is I can say, well, if I need to retry, let me perhaps take an alternate path. Where in Istio, I'm retrying and I really don't have any other option other than just say, oh, sorry, it's off. 
um, you know, give me a 500 or um, give me a another error status code. What's cool in Poly is I can retry in more intelligent ways. I can, you know, maybe degrade that experience and not show the stars, but show the rest of the page. Interesting. Because I would think in traffic management, the idea that I lose a service and I have a backup service somewhere else that I could fail to makes a lot of sense. And that would be tougher to code in the service. In fact, I'd want it to be in the infrastructure. Right. And so the more that I can push it outside of my code, the simpler my code is. Mm -hmm. And because I'm doing this in my control plane, I can do it universally for all the services. So I've got Poly in my .NET app. What do I have in my Java microservice? What do I have in my Go microservice? Do I need to figure out what the node equivalent of this is when I do a service there? If I can do it in my infrastructure instead, then I can have more of a universal type of retry mechanism that applies to everything. Yeah, it's just it's just that it's abstracted from the code, so it's not going to be as clever related to the code, but it is more generalized, so it doesn't care what language, what location, what implementation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Awesome. Uh You know, I'm looking at all the certificates required and wondering what the right thing is to do for certificates here, because I've never met a developer who's excited to have to deploy certificates. (laughs) Yeah, certificates are hard, and and arguably they're harder than they need to be. Um, I don't know how many times I've struggled with. So do I need to uh, keep my certificate signing request? What's the difference between that and my private key? How do I get my uh, certificate in the format that my server needs? Do I need to flip it from a P12 into a PEM and a SIR? Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do with those files anyway? Yeah. Uh, well, I just publish them to Google Drive so that then I can get... No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I keep all my Public passwords access. in Facebook so I can just scan back and see when I changed it last. Yeah, good luck finding anything in Facebook. Oh, Yeah. So Let's Encrypt has made this a lot simpler because Let's Encrypt just communicates between my web server and the certificate signer and just kind of negotiates that and updates my certificate automatically. And that is brilliant. But now here in Istio, it's like, well, what do I need to do this mutual TLS? I need a certificate then on either side to be able to do that. You know, Each side signs with their private key and with the other side's public key. That's a lot of certificates. <laughs> do I inject another certificate signer in place? You know, how do I pull that off? What's really elegant here is that uh, Istio has a piece called Citadel that does that piece itself. It is that certificate authority. And whenever uh, a proxy needs to reach out to another place, it reaches out to Citadel and grabs the certificates that it needs to pull it off. And so you're basically your own certificate authority when you're using Istio for these kinds of certs? Yeah, definitely. And because I'm uh, using these certificates signed by Citadel, then I only need to verify that it's trusted by Citadel. I don't need to you know, install that certificate in a trust store or ensure that I have a certificate that's globally supported. I definitely could swap in that kind of certificate if I wanted to. But for the most part, Citadel just keeps track of it. Yeah, and I got to think when you're external uh, calling, like then you'd want to have a, an external CA of some kind. Yeah, definitely. If I'm trying to uh, create a cluster that spans clouds, I might right. need an extra thing. Yeah. But as long as I have the Istio control plane across the entire cluster, in spite of all of the pieces, then for the most part, Istio just manages it. It's really cool. Nice. Um, coming down to the wire here, how do you feel about everything in containers? Do you still see a place for serverless as well? Mm. I do. And that's really cool because we kind of think of this as a journey. Well, I started out with physical machines and then I went to virtual machines and then I went to containers and then I went to app service, uh, you know, platform as a service. And then I move into serverless and it's like, well, if I'm on that journey, do I even want to stop at containers or do I want to just keep going to serverless all the way? Right. Yeah. Serverless is great for those workloads that are bursting that, you know, I need to run mm. 10,000 of them and then I'll leave it off for the rest of the month. And that's where um, serverless is great for those things where I need it to be always really responsive. The cold start of serverless can sometimes get in the way. You know, if Google is going to crawl my website and spin up the function to try and grab each next page. That cold start will probably kick me off the front page of Google search results. Ah, interesting, because performance for impact. I noticed that Build, Microsoft announced a sort of a hybrid startup mode for functions, 
where uh, you don't have the, the cold start, but it takes more resources. You basically have to have two copies running. That's cool. And that'll yeah. definitely ease that cold start piece. What's interesting about the serverless world is we've started to have all of these vendor-specific pieces. So Azure Functions is very different than Amazon Lambdas. And so it's like, mm. well, can I reach for a kind of universal platform? Kubernetes and Docker has done this for everyone uh, in the container space where we mm. don't have differing containers. There are other container types, but for the most part, we've standardized on Kubernetes and Docker. So I can spin up a Kubernetes cluster everywhere um, in Amazon, in Microsoft's cloud, in Google's cloud, uh, other clouds mm -hmm. as well. I just say, hey, give me a Kubernetes cluster and away it goes. Can I do that for serverless? No. Um, we have projects, I think it's called Knative. It might just be called Native with a K before it that allows me to run uh, functions as a service inside of containers and do that burstable scale on Kubernetes. And that can be really interesting. Um, Cloud Foundry kind of has a similar type of metaphor where they want to do the universal runs in any platform type of experience. Well, and, and just to be clear, or at least what I've heard is that all these serverless implementations are containers under the hood. You just don't see them. Probably. Uh, it's, it is interesting. I, I do think moving towards containers first and then seeing where you're having scaling challenges and you're saying, well, maybe it's worth taking this code and implementing it in a serverless implementation for the, for the cloud provider of your choice. And then you get that automatic elasticity. It's compelling, but you know you can pick and choose. You don't have to be all one way or all the other. I tend to think that serverless is a bit easier to to get going with because there isn't all of that infrastructure. But once you have, you know, Docker clusters and Kubernetes clusters going, you know, it's not that much more difficult for you to scale that up. Right. You know, and they do kind of appeal to different workloads. Docker is great when I need a very specific runtime and I need it configured in a very specific way. Mm, and serverless yeah. is better when I have a burstable thing and I can play in the sandbox that they've created for me. Right. So what's in your inbox? What's on your agenda? Well, this is Thursday. Next week, I'm going to Prairie DevCon in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Nice. So am I. Nice. No kidding. That'll be really great. Well, you guys got to say hello to our friend Joel Semeniak. Oh, no. I'm planning on spending a little time with him and his wife. Well, you're going to have to let us know how that goes. It is always so much fun. And visiting Canada in the summer is so much easier. Sure, but you don't get to play hockey. <laughs> it's just you know, the way it goes. Well, thanks again, Rob. It's been enlightening, and I'm sure everybody else thought so as well. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a... Oh.